but it also has greater responsibility for everyone involved in making that print that it be exactly right. Because what you say in print will be heard and it will persist. print friends and welcome to the 80th episode of pine copper lime the internet's number one printmaking podcast i'm your host miranda metcalf i release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected so please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice you can also find pine copper lime on instagram and facebook and you can find all this and more at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page where supporters can join at tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and they all help to keep bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous like stickers and totes, so if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check out the link in the show notes. It's also totally fine if you don't want to know more about that because times are tough and if you just want to listen to a show about printmaking and enjoy it, we want you to do just that. Hey, hey, print friends, we have merch, all kinds of fun designs to show your PCL spirit and make print jokes to confuse and or intrigue your friends and family. Link in the show notes. And if you haven't checked it out yet, we are archiving all past episodes of Pine Copper Lime on YouTube for your easy listening and sharing, and YouTube does not a terrible job at closed captioning either. Check it out there if you want to see what that's like. You can find that link at pinecopperlime.com. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Spookball Art Products who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. But we all know these products do not use themselves. That's why Speedball works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers who make up Speedball's team of demo artists. Artists like Maureen De Silva, Managing Director of the Imprint Collective of Toronto. After graduating from school, Maureen turned to Speedball's at-home screen printing instructions to continue printing without the professional-grade equipment found at university. Learning how to expose screens at home now has screen printing rivaling her love of lithography. So, if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade and expand and improve your practice, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel to see how it's done. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Phil Sanders former director of the Robert Blackburn Workshop and master printer at ULAE. Phil's new book release, Prints and Their Makers, is a massive undertaking updating the canon of fine art printmaking. We'll talk about the value of one's voice in print, the three hats of printmaking, additioning as a byproduct of the creative process, and how to expand our communities. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to meet your maker, of Prince with Phil Sanders. Hi, Phil. How's it going? Great. How are you doing? It's nice to be speaking with someone halfway around the world. Yeah, yeah. Same, same. It's it's always wonderful to connect with another person who is in the print world and then also in the print advocate side of the print world, which I feel like you and I probably have in common that we're we're the trying to connect people to the print world, trying to get people to understand it. And it's uh, it, it's important work, if I do say so myself, that we're both in. <laughs> I, uh, I have a complete agreement with you. And for me, it's not just about helping people get into it. It's about helping people feel enthusiastic. Mm, you know, prints yeah. have so much to offer and there's so much in the story and the backstory and the, the long traditions of printmaking that connect people back, you know, 1300 years to the beginnings of printmaking. Yeah. So there, there's so much uh, richness in that history and how it still informs the prints of people making today that it makes for the best storytelling. I love it. It's so true. <laughs> so, so before we dive into this project that you've undertaken, this book that you've published, being print advocates in the world, would you just have a little introduction um, of yourself that's the who you are and where you are and what you do with your time? Sure. My background is as a collaborative master printer, and I am someone who is versed in 
all the printing processes, so lithography, intaglio, relief processes, screen print, and all of the subsets there within. In my former life, I was the chief operating officer of the Elizabeth Foundation for the Arts in New York City and director of the Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop. I was tasked with uh, reopening that program after Bob's passing and after it became a program of the Elizabeth Foundation for the Arts. Prior to that, I was the master printer and studio director for Universal Limited Art Editions. Mm-hmm. was teaching at Stanford and San Francisco State uh, prior to that and working for Trillium Graphics in San Francisco prior to that. And so my life has been one that's been involved as a collaborator as well as someone who's been running studios. And so as my printing career progressed, it became a person that was not just the person making it, but also making publishing decisions and publishing and mm-hmm. selling work, and collector education and things like that, which in turn, being someone who has been involved with a lot of print shops at varying points of their arc, of financial arcs, I also started doing business advisement. And so what I do now is a combination of things. I have a small print shop here in Asheville, North Carolina, where I'm based now. Mm-hmm. And I also run a arts business consulting company. And I do things helping nonprofits, helping for-profit galleries, artists doing project development stuff for individual artists as well as companies and museums, advise schools, do real estate development when it's arts focused. So I have kind of a a wide swath of things that I do professionally, but everything always comes back to the arts as being the center of all of what I do and how important that is, not just as the glue, the binding glue of a society or a local community, but how important it is for each individual's own sense of place in the world, you know, to refill their creative wells and how we do that by seeing the world through the eyes of others and the arts in themselves is really what that is. When an artist makes work, they are showing us the way they see the world through their work. And so when we get to look at that work, we get to see the world in that way. I do make work myself as well, but not as often as I'd like to, but I've got a lot of things going on, but I do occasionally make work. (laughs) I kind of come at this from, um, a variety of angles as being someone who's been you know deeply passionate about print sp- speak a lot about print over the years as well as someone who deals with clients and collectors and helping them get a greater understanding of the history of print and how mm-hmm. contemporary work fits into that so the book that i i did was it was published by prince and architectural press came out uh end of last october it was really something that came out of something that i had done consistently for the IFPDA, the International Fine Print Dealers Association's art fair that they would do in the in October every year in New York. I used to lead, when we could all go to art fairs in person, mm-hmm. um, I used to lead a tour of the fair from a master printer's perspective. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, you know, walking, it's like walking through a museum's back room. Yeah. It's going to that fair. So you get to see work from all different time periods, different parts of the world, all the way up into the most contemporary works. And so I used to lead clients and collectors through that fair and kind of give them the history of print and all of its processes through that fair. And so this book in a lot of ways comes out of a lot of that type of work that I've done, but then also relies heavily on my professional world relationships as a printer and a publisher. And so it's really about highlighting all these different workshops um, across the the globe and artists from all different parts of the world and how printmaking is so important to artists working today and why that is. And so the book really tries to, give you a foundation of some history, kind of give you the perspective of how an artist has to think in order to draw or use a particular process, as well as try to put you press side for projects start to finish. And so it's there's over 100 contemporary artists, 50 historic artists in there. There's over 400 images in the book. It's very image heavy. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, commend our Princeton Architectural Press about was when we first just talked about doing this book, we I had a couple things that I said, well, this is what I want in order to do it. And one of them was that all the contemporary work be full page reproductions, nothing small mm-hmm. and nothing like multiple contemporary images being clumped onto a page. I said, you know, it's hard enough to see the work in a reproduction. It doesn't have the same feel as being in front of it in person, but it's even harder when you shrink it down or you group things too closely together and it changes the context of the work. And they were right on board with that. They wanted to help the art be front and center. Yeah. You know, and one of the other things was, you know, is, a, is saying to them that I was really wanting to use this as an opportunity to kind of update or modernize the canon of print mm-hmm. history. 
and how it connects to contemporary work and contemporary artists and let them know that this was going to have a wider array of voices than what they may have been expecting. And they were really happy about that as well. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky enough to see a little preview of, of this book that you could send to me is just absolutely beautiful. And you know, the, the title is Prince and their makers. And I feel like I knew the title before I saw the book. And then once I saw the book, I was like, this is the most accurate title I think I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, it's just the way it's just like you, you are taking on this project that is the canon. Like you're kind of building a new canon, a 21st century canon that is looking at going back to, I think, Dürer is the first artist that appears. And, and you know, right up until people who are working today, even, you know, Martin Mazora, like Pine Copper Lime alumnus, you know, uh, people I've talked to just in the last year. So what was your motivation to take on this project? Because it's a huge undertaking to say that, you know, in 300 some odd pages, I am going to write prints and their makers. Well, I have to say, honestly, it wasn't something I set out to do. Okay. <laughs> Initially. Um, they, uh, the publisher, Jan Hartman, who was at Princeton Architectural Press at the time, who was their senior content editor, uh, called me up and asked if I'd be interested in doing a book like this. And she did it because of a series of short films I had done with Plowshares Media for the Museum of Modern Art mm-hmm. um, to accompany the, ex- the German Expressionist exhibition. So Star Figuera at, at MoMA had commissioned me while I was at the Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop to do these process-based films. And so Princeton Architectural Press was thinking about doing a book on printmaking, and they started looking around for who might be a good person to do it. And they had seen these short films I'd done, you know, like how you do a lithograph, how you do a woodcut. And what they liked and responded to well with it, that it was a lot of information that was easily digested by someone who didn't know anything about it. You know, and that just comes from a a lifetime of teaching and working with artists who've never done this process before, but trying to help them achieve a high level, you know, so like you can have a super famous artist come in the door, but they've never done an etching before. Right. So it's like, how do you explain a process to someone to help them feel comfortable and confident to make their work to the highest level in a process they've never even thought about doing. And so, so my approach to it comes from that way of trying to help get people as comfortable as possible. And so we kind of talked about different ideas for a book and it was actually, you know, what really solidified the format of the book as I sent them a progressive of uh, it's a gold chair, which is in the books by artist Sarah Sanders. Mm. And it shows all the black line drawings that were required to produce a 12 color lithograph. And so it shows each each drawing in black and shows how the image then progresses together. And they were like, we want a book that does that. I said, mm-hmm. okay, I'm happy to write that book. And so we really talked about it and we hashed it out. And as I started writing, I started realizing it needed more space. So I kept going back to them being like, here's what I've got so far. Can we have another signature? Uh-huh. <laughs> and and Jan, Jan Hartman was really great in pushing for more, which is why the book ended up being basically 320 pages. Is So that way we had enough space to tell enough of the story of printmaking to where people felt they had the time to spend with it. Mm. So it wasn't just like a little taste and you're like, oh, I wish I had more. But that you got enough to feel like you could really live with the material and digest it and spend some time with it and then revisit it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it's something, you know, the intention was that it's a book that it can be read in ways where you're getting, you can read five, a five page chapter and put a book down and then come back to it in a week or a month and read a different eight, five page section mm-hmm. and get a whole different thing. So that you're getting these vignettes and these stories that you can read disjointed or you could read in order that because that's kind of the way in which most of us have discovered print. You know, you get into printmaking because of one process or one artist and you kind of spiral out from there. And so the idea was with the book was to really make it possible to meander through and kind of get lost in different places and processes and artists and things like that. But that it'd be very 21st century. So all of the contemporary work, I think the oldest contemporary piece is a 2006 work. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of everything is made within the last five years. And you've also spoken to the fact that when you went about deciding which artists to include, you were intentionally creating a more diverse narrative than we've seen or that we usually see 
in the history of print. Because as we said, Albrecht Dürer appears first, but I think the next artist is Charles White. So can you speak to that process, I guess, a bit? And just in general, out of all the printmakers and all the history, this you know 1,300-year history you're looking at, how did you choose who was going to be highlighted in this book? That's actually was the hardest thing because people are like, oh, is it so hard to write the book? And I was like, hey, writing the book is actually not that hard. Like, that, the hardest part was not getting to say all you want to say mm. and include all the people you want to include because you are limited in pages. And so for me, it was really important. There's a lot of books that talk about a lot of people we know about and art from the art historic canon or otherwise. And so it was about trying to include some voices and context you may not have heard from or seen before or seen in a long time. And so for me, the story of printmaking has always been about the value of one's voice Mm. being preserved, not just for time across time and distance because of the potential of an addition, allowing an artwork to disseminate across the globe. And so the likelihood of it surviving is that much more increased, but it's about the value of one's voice. And because it's being additioned, what you have to say is that much more important because Mm -hmm. it's multiplied. And so it's, it was a big part of the story of print for me was to try to pull out different points in print history where it was really valuable that that voice had been recorded in print. Hmm. And so Charles White's portrait of John Brown was extraordinarily important that that print done in 1948, where you have two African-Americans working together, Charles White and Robert Blackburn as the collaborating printer, producing an image of John Brown at the early days of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So that print would not have been, would likely not have been printed by a white printer in 1940. But that image went all across the United States. You know, it was, it was a call to stand up to not just, you know, for the African-American community, but for the white community. Like this is a time, this is a time like John Brown's time where we need to stand up and fight do whatever is necessary in order to advance the cause of equality and freedom. And so that image to me really represents just as much as say the Gutenberg Bible does mm-hmm. as far as it's, it's poignance in the history of print because of what that image meant, not just as a single image, but as an image in multiple and what it could do and what it can continue to do because of the fact that it survives. So the fact that it survived and it's in different museum collections means it's there for context over time. It can be brought back out. It can be seen again. And so for me, it was really important to put an image like that so early on in the introduction of the book because it really encapsulates so much of the value and the point of print, mm-hmm. of making something physical and making it last and withstand the test of time. So that's why you'll see that right away. You'll also see that, you know, project of Bob Blackburn working with Bob Rauschenberg when they were making Accident out at Universal Women Art Editions. And why it's so visually important is to see, you know, it's, it's, it's the early 60s and to see a black man and a white man working in collaboration to push the arts forward, to push culture forward, mm-hmm. to push this idea that we, we can better ourselves through what we do. And so it's really important that that's visually present because that, that image has never been in print before. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's not even widely known to exist, that image of Bob Rauschenberg and Bob Blackman working together. So it was really important to establish that right away too, to kind of help set a tone that prints matter in a lot of ways because that image is now in print. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, it's, it's taking it not just the fine art print that goes out, but it's also to try to reference what needs to be in print, like mm-hmm. in books or the physical thing, you know, being present. Because one of the things that, you know, those of us in the print world as print geeks, we always talk about is the fact that it's physical. Yes. That it's real, that it's it's not just living on someone's hard drive and on someone's server that you hope doesn't crash. That it's it, it exists, it's findable, and how important that actually is. And that's why a lot of artists today want to work in print because it is physical. Yeah, and through line from history too. I think we, we were talking a little bit about it actually before we started recording of print as a medium that 
is a catalyst for social change, is a medium that because it can distribute ideas and words and the power of those images and the power of those words can carry concepts to people. And so you were, you were saying about how, you know, the printing press uh, in Europe, you know, was, was operational for, for 30 years, I think you said, before they were like, oh, oh, no, we, we can't we can't be having this information getting out. We can't be having poor people learning to read. This is going to just going to cause problems for everyone. Right. Yeah, that was in Korea. Yeah, it was at the early days of uh, movable type, you know, and the invention, you know, of movable type as well as perfecting fonts and and how you deal with language. You know, the Korean language was, as we understand it, written today was was created. Mm. You know, scientists and mathematicians got together and they created it the most efficient language as far as writing is concerned because they were piggybacking that onto printing and movable type. And so within three years, they developed the way to write the language, three different fonts, and we're already you know mass producing printed text. But it didn't last all that long, and it, you know it just had to do with access to information and whose voice gets preserved. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we think about printing, a big part of the printing decision, you know, to piggyback on, you know, how did I make these choices? There's a lot of weight in that because you are including, and by the nature of that, including excluding voices. Yes. And so, you know, what someone chooses to print and put into print really says as much about how they what they value in that but also what they're not necessarily including and I think that was one of the hardest parts for me in writing the book was knowing that there's so much more I would want to include and that I, I would love to have been able to include but some of it came down to time and permissions and getting all that stuff together and so some things got cut because of that and you know, so you just, and then you start running out of be like, well, the narrative doesn't make as much sense if I throw this thing in there, even though I really want it in there. And, and you're trying to make sure that you're reaching an audience and helping build their confidence and understanding about the arts versus confusing them because maybe something seems out of place. And so some, some things got cut just because of narrative flow of, of, for a book. But I was just, you know, I have this like pile of stuff that got cut that's a potential future publication. It's something I'm, I've started, I'll be doing um, February 25th to be the first episode of a book club based off of it. So it's a Prince and Their Makers book club, which goes into some of that stuff that got cut, goes into further depth on some of the stories. Because I had, in the initial beginnings of writing the book, I had even longer captions. And that's one of the things people have said about the book. They're like, man, there's so much information in the captions. Mm-hmm. And that's because that's, as a as a print geek, you always want to know more. You're like, well, oh, who yeah. published that? Or who printed that? Or where was it made? How many layers or, is that? Yeah. Yeah, you want more info, right? And so I was like, well, I'm going to try to make the captions for the ultimate print geek. And it was even like the captions are long, but they were really long initially. And so sometimes I, I would there'd be like two paragraphs of context for a particular image. And the publisher at one point says, okay, we can either have captions or art. <laughs> and I was like, okay, <laughs> we can we can reduce the size of the captions. And so but they still are really long, which I'm really happy about. Because it's also about, you know, it is the title of the book, Prince and Their Makers. It's If we didn't tell you who made it, then we would really be doing a disservice to uh, like kind of revealing the process. And so for me, the, the point of the book was about demystifying printmaking in a lot of ways. Because there's, you know, there's so much that's, here's the artist's name. It's all about the artist, which is great, which is what we do as printers. That's why we're doing it, help our artists make their work. But at the same time, to help people really understand why this is so important, knowing more about all of the people involved to get something across the finish line really helps to add some of that other intrinsic value and helps helps benefit the value-worth relationship so that we can all keep affording to make prints. Yeah. And so it helps people understand, like, when you see that, like, oh, there was eight printers involved in making this work, mm-hmm. that was not a cheap turnaround image. <laughs> You know, it's not like what people think, like printing shouldn't be cheap. It's like, no, that was ex- an expensive undertaking. It was it was faith on behalf of that publisher that this was going to financially make it, right? It's to put that much effort and manpower and money behind making a work come into the world. And when you start going through the book, you're like, there's hundreds of these. Yeah. <laughs> it's happening all over the place that there's that much faith in the artist, faith in the prints, and then faith that 
that work will speak to an audience enough that they'll financially support it by purchasing the work. Yes. You know, so it's it's that's a lot of the book really is about the different hats, you know, the artist, the printer, and the publisher that are required to get any print into the world. And that, you know, even if you're making your own personal prints and selling your own work, you're still wearing all three of those hats. Yes. You're yeah. acting as the artist, you're acting as the printer, and you're acting as the publisher because you put up the money to buy your paper and plates, and you're putting up the money to put it out there in the world, and you're selling it. So you are wearing all three hats. Those three hats have to be worn. And it's, you know, nicest when those hats are different people. You know, because the artist can just focus on the art. The printer can just focus on helping that artist realize it and doing the printing. And the publisher can focus on making sure the money's there and then making sure it's connecting to an audience directly. Mm-hmm. So that's like the best case scenario is when everybody's well supported enough to make each of those roles get to be separate and then everyone gets to do their best. The reality is, is oftentimes it's too and two groups of people or two people or even one person, you know, so it's a printer publisher and an artist or an artist who's also their own printer and their own publisher. And so, you know, the book does have examples of people who publish their own work, you know, their own printer publisher as well. It's not just all work that's been published, even though it does have a pretty big focus on work that was produced in print shops by different publishers around the world. Yeah. And I think that that tradition of having the artist, the printer and the publisher, being different entities, being different bodies, all with a stake in producing a good image. The fact that that goes back to the early, early days of printmaking, I'm not sure how much people really understand that. And I I say this as someone who worked in 16th century prints for a while, and, you know, people really thinking that Peter Bruchel the Elder is printing his own work, you know, imagining exactly. him in there, you know, wiping the plate himself. And it's like, oh, no, no, no. Like I, you know, Hieronymus Koch, who gets a, a shout out in the beginning of your book, shows up many mm-hmm. times in my thesis when I was doing my, my MA and the history of printmaking. And so I think you've touched on it a little bit, but I'm hoping that just for people listening who maybe don't understand how all of that works, like maybe they are printmakers who've been working as printer, publisher, and artist all together, and they don't even know it. If you could just give like a quick 101 how that system works and how it has been a part of printmaking pretty much since the beginning in Western traditions. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was even part of it in the early days in China and Eastern traditions as well. It was it was just done slightly differently. Um, Hieronymus Koch's model was an adaptation of Asian model, you know, a Chinese model, and it was just adapted for Western times and sensibilities. But basically, what you have is there's a couple of different ways a print just gets decided to be made, and some of it is driven by the artist driving an image, and some of it is driven by a market driving a need for certain types of images. And when you're thinking back to, you know, the, the, like the 1550s in Europe, a lot of it was trying to build a market for images because the ability to own images, if you were not extraordinarily wealthy, was brand new. Yeah. Right. Because, because paper was new and, <laughs> and things like that. You know, access to paper was really difficult and expensive prior to the middle 1400s. So once paper became readily available in Europe because it was being produced in Europe then printmaking really took off there. And so what they were doing was, you know, making images for people's homes that up until that point could never have an image on their walls. And so what a lot of these early printers and publishers were really thinking about is, well, what do I want to print? What do I, what do people want and which artists and voices can, do I want to promote because I either love their work, agree with them, or can just physically work with them because of temperament. And so early days, you know, so someone like Peter Bruegel the Elder, what, what's so great about his story is most people who come across him in art history know him as a painter. Yeah. But it was, he did, I think he did something like 42 paintings or something around there for his whole life and made 35 <laughs> of them in the last five years of his life. Yeah. And it's because he couldn't afford to be a painter before then. 
And it's the reason was, you know, being a painter was expensive. You had to make your own paint. You had to employ people in the studio. It's, it was an expensive undertaking. But making prints, on the other hand, Hieronymus Scott, what was so great about him as an early publisher is he recognized the value of multiplying an artist's voice. And so he helped build the career of artists by setting up a great draftsman, you know, someone, someone like Bruegel with a really great engraver and a printer. And as a result, they could work faster because each one of them specialized. So instead of saying to Bruegel, I think your drawings are great. You have a great style. Now I want you to spend the next 15 years learning how to engrave. Yeah. He said, you draw, work with a printer, learn to adjust your drawings so that they can then work from those to make the best plates. We can all make more art by, by being good at the things we're good at. And he's like, and I'll sell the work. He was a printer too, but he predominantly sold work towards the end. He did mm. less printing as, as he aged. But so what he did is he created this model of pairing talents together to produce better work and so this is where we're really first seeing what those of us in print publishing and printing talk about is the one plus one equals three situation so he's like great printer great artist their personalities will work well with one another they'll make each other better because mm -hmm. of the fact that they're collaborating with one another and then the work i get will be that much better people will be that much happier to own it and it'll have a greater effect and so as a result and he does something like 40 engravings in this manner and builds enough of a name, enough of a recognition for himself as an artist where he could start painting. Mm -hmm. And it and it's that's really the story of print that still carries through to today. Yeah. You know, it's artists, you know, they, they start gaining some stature and some notoriety, but their voice isn't quite that far out there. Once they start doing prints and they have different publishers working on their behalf, and now they have a lot more work that's available to be seen. And their name is just out there that much more often. It's that much easier for institutions to collect their work because it doesn't make front page of the New York Times art section if the Museum of Modern Art buys a print from a young painter or sculptor. Mm -hmm. But it surely does if they spend a lot of money on a painting mm -hmm. with someone who's like 35 years old or something. And so there's less risk at collecting early institutionally. And it's also the same thing for individual collectors. And so... The print market really just hasn't changed that much. It's like artists want to say something through their work. It's what drives them to make work. A great printer can help them have the best clarity of their voice, mm. you know, distilling what it is that they do and what it is that they have to say in a visual format in a way that allows them to speak the most clearly and produce something that really is quite beautiful and different from their regular studio practice, but recognizable as them. Yes. And then the, and the publisher has that opportunity to put that in the world. And so what you're getting is this really wonderful marriage of skills and talents to do something that could not be done in any other way. And, you know, so one of the things that I tell people, artists all the time, that it's great for other people to know is that Contemporary collaborative printers, we're not interested in recreating the world or reproducing an artwork for an artist. We're interested in helping them create a new world, helping mm. them, you know, helping them achieve an idea versus, versus working backwards from an image, right? And so that's something that when I try to explain printmaking to people in the beginning, a lot of what I talk about is everyone understands printmaking and it's everyday use, like your money, a book, a magazine, a poster, a billboard, your t-shirts, all that stuff is printmaking. And it's what it's doing is recreating something. So here's a very specific static thing that exists that you're recreating. Versus when an artist gets the process, they have the choice of utilizing the tools and materials and expertise to create a world, to go somewhere where they don't know where they're gonna get. And that's you know what people think of when, when someone goes to do a painting, they start a sketch, they start an underpainting and they go working and they're building and they're layering and they're building and things are changing and things are moving around and you're trying different things out until you arrive at the final image. You can treat printmaking that way, that creation of a world. Mm. You have that choice. You can go reproductive, work backwards, or you can go more additive or creative and go towards something. You have the choice. And you also then have the choice on whether or not you want to make more than one of it. Mm. So additionability isn't a guarantee. You don't have to do it. Yeah. It's just something that you can do as a byproduct of the process of creation. And so when you think about it, you know, like someone will say, well, why did you print a certain number? 
And that's because one artist has the opportunity to make more than one. And two, they have the opportunity to make it more affordable because there's more than one, as well as to allow it to be more widely disseminated. Mm -hmm. So many artists really like the idea of editions because more people can own their work. And I think that's that accessibility is something that's been foundational to printmaking from its earliest days in China, because that was really the point was accessibility and multiplication of the voice. When we think of the Diamond Sutra, which is the oldest dated printed book, it states clearly in the text that this is for mass free dissemination. Mm. The idea was to get it out to as many people as possible. And so that's really, you know, it's something that print has going for it that other media don't, you know, the story I tell people is if you do an amazing painting, somebody loves it, they buy it, they put it in their bedroom because they want to see it all the time. Maybe it's on their art tour for their home. Maybe not. Maybe 50 people get to see it in a lifetime of it living in that home. Now you do a a print that's just as great and you do an addition of 50, Mm -hmm. that's 50 bedrooms times 50 people that it's going to be seen in now. Yeah. And so what it does, the potential for that artist is so much higher, but it also has greater responsibility for everyone involved in making that print, that it be exactly right. Mm. Because what you say in print will be heard and it will persist. Mm. Right. So it's not that one painting that's over here and maybe it was a tangent and your, you know, arc of your career. This is something that exists in multiple and has a chance of surviving you know, long-term, you know, we have piles and piles of Durer's prints, Yes, you know, 500 years old. And so they've survived. And so that's one of the things that a lot of artists really feel. And I know as a printer and as a publisher that we really feel is that responsibility to get it right. So mm-hmm. when someone's looking at printmaking, you know, artists working in that medium, what they're seeing is some of the most considered and thought through works that an artist will make. Yeah, and I I love that point you had right at the end about the longevity of the image being more likely because of the capacity for the multiple. And even as someone who, again, studied 16th century printmaking, it, it never occurred to me that just specifically the fact that we have so many Dürer prints, the fact that we have so many prints from all of these early Northern Renaissance artists it's like, well, yeah, of, of course, you know, they, there's just more of a chance that they get tucked into a, a, a book in the right conditions or, you know, given to the right person who knows how to take care of it. And then here they are on the Christie's auction block, you know, 500 some odd years later, still being revered, still being adored. It's, it's a really significant point and, and that... Should we not face total climate collapse uh, 500 years from now? <laughs> you know, the prints that are being made um, at Robert Blackburn's studio, you know, may be up on an auction block in, in a way that, that other works have just been lost or destroyed or given to someone who didn't care about them. All of the, th- all of the ways that, that unique pieces can be, can be lost in time. Yeah, I love that. Right. I mean, and for me, you know, I always go back to, you know, Hieronymus Koch, who's, you know, print shop in Antwerp Mm -hmm. and founded in 1548, I believe, was entitled the House of the Four Winds. The intention from the naming of his business was to scatter these throughout the world, was to really spread that voice. And I think what's so beautiful about that is that's how much he valued the artist's voice and their contributions. Mm. that he believed it should be scattered to the four corners of the world. It should be spread. It should be disseminated. It should be accessible, right? And so that faith in the artist and the art and the value of art was something that was foundational to printmaking from its earliest days. And that's really what carries it through now is that, that faith in the voice of the artist and the value that artists have within our society to make contributions of not just showing us who we are, but also showing us who we can become, you know? And so for me, you know, a lot of what I was trying to do with the book was to show more of who we are, Hmm. like show Hmm. the widest array of voices I could get, I could cram into there. And so, because it shows us more of who we can become, right? Because that's really the value of print 
is that we have a record to look back on so that future generations will better understand who they are because they could know who we were. Right. And it's, and it's that importance of that continuity of that record of how far we've come that helps keep you pushing further. Mm. You know, it's looking back is important because you, it may not feel like that much change has occurred, you know, because you might be involved in the struggle of the time. But when you look back and you say, well, what would, what would I have been able to say 50 years ago? Hmm. How would mm-hmm. that have been received? Could I say what I'm saying right now, 50 years ago, what would have happened or hundred years ago or 200 years ago? And it gives you a bit more confidence to keep pushing because you can see how far you've come because there's a record of it, you know? And so, and then you can put things in, in context and in dialogue over centuries at that point. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can do an exhibition that's Durer's work that's connecting to William Kendridge and his monumental project, the triumphs and laments mm-hmm. that he, you know, did with David crew projects out of based out of Johannesburg, or you can even tie Durer to someone like Christian Baumgartner who's working at Leipzig. Yeah. And you can see that, that continuity of how a mark is used. And so there's all these different conversations that we can have across time because the things physically exist, mm-hmm. you know? And so for me, the more that publishers, are reaching out to a wider array of voices, the better we can understand who we are and the better we can understand who we can become because we can see more of us and see more in us. You know, it's that commonalities that you get to see that help highlight the changes that need to be made. And so prints are really important. I've been involved in social change since the beginning. I mean, mm-hmm. print was banned for the first time in 835 in China. You know, it was, <laughs> You know, had it had been around, hadn't even been around 200 years and it had already been banned. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, and it's because it has such a great ability to cause social change. You think of someone like um, Jose Guadalupe Posada mm-hmm. and how his images really helped incite revolution. And, you know, so, and when you think about the relief printing tradition and apartheid South Africa and how that helped really mm-hmm. highlight what was going on there. Um, you know, through, you know, artist learning, like say through the Rourke Strip Collective and things like that. So there's printmaking has been instrumental in so much change. And it's, and it's because of that, you know, people are referred to as a, as the democratic um, process aspect of printmaking, that it's just so much more accessible. But for me on a basic level, so much more has to do with the fact that it can survive. Yeah. That's really its power is that, you know, if someone makes an, does a, like Posada, they do like print 3,000, 4,000 broadsheets in a day of something. The likelihood yeah. of anyone getting to stop that from being disseminated is low, yeah. right? So that's why it's, it's the value of the voice. And that's what I keep going back to with printmaking for me is it's like how we value the voice. And when you think about that relationship of the artist and the printer and the publisher, everyone has to have enough faith and value in the voice in order to put all that work and effort into getting it across the finish line to get it out into the world. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, I always go back to that. It's, it's that fundamental belief and faith because publishers different to a lot of galleries have to put up their money first. Mm. Right? They're paying to produce the work. They're paying for a printer to be there working with an artist. They're paying for the marketing. They're paying for the materials. They're paying for the overhead of that shop. Whereas a gallery, the artist has covered all of those expenses and they're bringing it into that space. So there's, there's less money in the game for a regular art dealer versus a print publisher. Mm. And so what people are seeing, and this is what I tell especially young collectors or new collectors, is that when you go to see work that's, that's been produced by a publisher, you're seeing some of the most vetted work. Right. You're seeing, they're saying, we have so much faith that this artist his voice is so valuable and that their work will hold up financially over time that we're willing to put our money up front. That says a lot. And I think, you know, for the artist printmaker, it also says a lot too, because they're making that investment in themselves in that way as well. And that goes for all artists of every media, but you know, in print, you know, it's sometimes people kind of forget about that aspect or don't think about it so much because they're like oh it's the artist printmaker it's like well no they're also their own publisher too and they're putting their money up to put that work out there and it's and that's you have to recognize what that means when you're coming to the work that there was a lot of investment not just in time and effort and energy and creativity but also financial in order to get this out into the world 
And so, you know, for me, it's really important that people understand that you can't have prints happening without those three roles being played. Mm-hmm. You have to wear those three hats have to be worn. And, and how we as a society, where we place the burden and how burdensome we make it on artists to be able to make a contribution by having to fulfill those roles determines how much we get enriched by how much work we get available. So if we're willing to support more and support it at a higher level, being like, we recognize that the cost of paper keeps going up. Mm-hmm. So the cost of paper should probably be going up too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and we understand that, you know, you know, rents in New York City are crazy expensive. So the price of these prints is going to go up, yep. you know, from an artist you may not even know of, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just about, you know, connecting it to the reality of that um, versus going, well, there's more than one, so it should just be less, totally. worth less. Totally. And I, I say there's more than one, it should be worth more mm. because so many more people valued it to put that much effort into multiplying it. So yeah. it's you need to look at it differently. And so, and the thing I found is with print collectors and works on paper collectors is it's it's more about stewardship than it is ownership when it comes to collecting. Yeah. And it's a really different perspective when it comes to thinking about art. And because print collectors, they're putting together groups of things for conversation. And it's you can have a flat file that has tons of art in it. And it's not all on the walls. It's not about necessarily just being displayed right it's about that stewardship of maintenance of of this item that can stand the test of time and i think that's why so many dora prince or schoengauer we could go into all these artists from you know back in the 14 and 1500s why a lot of that stuff survived was because people felt as stewards of the work and one of my favorite things with looking at old work is is seeing who all owned the work is getting the provenance list yeah. And you see, like you see all of the different stewards over time, you know, all of these people took care of something because they understood its intrinsic value culturally, not just its financial worth. And I think that's, that's, a, that's an important thing for me with putting the contemporary work in here in context of the historic is saying that these contemporary pieces will be those historic pieces. Mm. Like that's my faith in these artists and this work is that I believe that their voice matters that it's so valuable that we should put it together in a collection and think about it in that way. And so for me, I had to go way back to that early question, it was really hard to pick which artists would be in the book, you know, because to me, I wanted a lot more people in the book than I had space for. So I, I did the best I could to try to show what a process can do in the hands of all these different artists, you know, because it, it had, there was an education component to the book too, you know, trying to show just what a screen print could be, just what a lithograph could be, just what an etching or a photo reviewer could be, or a relief print could be. Just really show the diversity of aesthetic approaches to really demonstrate that it's the artist that drives the process and not the process driving the artist. Mm. Right. So that when you see all that visual diversity of imagery in the same process, and you see 24 different relief prints, and they're all printed in the same manner, but nothing looks the same. Yeah. That really helps you understand that it's the artist's vision that drives this train here, and I, and I think that's what I really wanted to come. I wanted people to come home with. I, you know, at the end of the day, if when someone looks at my book, if all they go is that's some really nice images, then I've done my job. Mm. Because it should. You now I always go back to like what Bob Blackburn used to say, which was it needs to be art first that happens to be a print. Absolutely. In the time that we have left, I want to make sure that we do get a chance to talk about collecting um, because a lot of that is tying into everything all those beautiful things you were just talking about about this stewardship and about the images getting out into the world because we need collectors for that you know they need to be going places they need to be going to homes um, otherwise people can put the money up and make the most spectacular image that's addition to 50 ever to exist, but without that interest of the public to come and take one and be the vessel that brings it out into the world, there's not, you know, all of that effort is kind of for naught. So I would like to read a quote from the book, um, and it's, it's a little long, but it was the most eloquent summation of why print collecting is important. 
uh, that I've ever read. And so I'd, I'd like to, to read it and then maybe you can say more about it as a way to kind of bring us into talking about collecting. Sure. Yeah. So it says, for all the creative and conceptual reasons why an artist might choose to work in print, the art marketplace reflects very different motivations. Prints are often a cost-effective way to begin collecting artwork, and they offer the opportunity for collectors to support a variety of artists at differing points in their career. The relative affordability of prints encourages acquisition of works by young or emerging artists who are taking creative risks. At the opposite end of the spectrum, prints by more established artists whose primary work may be beyond reach enable their work to enter into a wider collecting sphere. A focus on prints makes it possible to build a collection that captures a moment in time or the span of an entire career. And I just was like, slow clap, there it is. Like, I was so, when I read that, I just was like, yes, 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 all of this. And so, you know, this idea that, that, that young collectors can collect, you can take risks with collecting, you can get work from an artist who you adore, but you're just never going to be able to afford a $20,000 painting from them. It's just such an important part of the commercial side of the art world and the enriching experience that art collecting can be. And I wrote underneath this caption in my notes, in all caps, how do we get the world to know this? Like, this is like the question of my life is that all that perfect summation of why prints are great, why collecting prints are great, how do we get that from you and I having this conversation to all of the people in their, let's say, you know, mid to late 30s who are reaching a point in their career where they can start dabbling in art collecting, supporting artists, being patrons. How do we get them to think of prints first as a way to do this? I think it's it's a really good question, and it's something that you know I don't definitely don't have the answer to, or, or you know, we'd be having a very different conversation <laughs> right. right now. But I, but I have a perspective. I, th- I think so much of it comes down to people not feeling people in general not feeling welcome into the art world mm. because there's a lot of barriers that are placed: educational barriers, class barriers, wealth barriers that are placed that where people do not feel that there's a place for them in the art world. So the art world with the capital A seems really small versus it being really broad and really diverse. And a lot of different voices are able to live within the art world. And I think it's, it's really, it's, it's a branding and marketing problem. Mm -hmm. And what it really needs to is it's like, how do you increase the tank? size like how do you bring more people in it's it's by welcoming them it's about giving them a place you know so for me a lot of writing this book was something that it's you know on one level it's it's a really nice coffee table book it's a visual eye candy it's beautifully designed i mean the designers of the prince and compress did a great job it's a beautiful book but on the other hand is that you have to use that enticement to then teach somebody something and then empower them you know so for me I look at marketing and from a really simplistic perspective, it's about presentation of the facts, reframing of the reality of the world based on those facts and a call to action. And I hope that what comes through in my book, which is like my contribution to trying to fix this problem, is that people are then inspired to go see work in person, that they feel that enough of the barriers have been reduced or lowered so that they can enter into the art world through the printmaking door. Right? Because it's in so many ways, like the fancy, big Art Basel art world is the, that's the front door, right? <laughs> that's the one that everyone thinks they're not allowed into the party mm-hmm. because they see the bouncer at the door, their name's not on the guest list. They don't have enough zeros in their bank account. Mm-hmm. And, but what it is, is there's the printmaking door, which is the back door or the side door where you can get into that world. You, there's still a way for you to get in and to participate and to where your perspective matters. Because I, I talk a lot about how the work of the artist, the printer, the publisher, all of our work ends where the viewer and the collector's work begins. Mm. And we need one another. And so because we've done all this to you know, let a work have its own life, 
And so, but it, it needs to have a home to live within. It needs a life to be a part of. And so it's our job to reduce the number of barriers to increase the amount of people who feel that they can participate in this world. And, I, and, I, and it's a difficult thing because we are up against a lot of financial pressures and it's like, you know, you gotta, you know, you know the people with all the extra zeros can buy a lot of stuff really quickly from you yeah. and keep you going. Right. So it seems almost too hard to cast the net super wide than to go for really specific from a lot of art dealers and print publishers perspective. And so you got to go, you got, you know, everybody has to eat, you know, you have to pay your bills. Mm -hmm. And so my hope with doing something, a book like this is that it helps cast that net a little wider. It helps do a little bit of that legwork for all these other publishers. So one of the reasons there's, there's 34 different publishers, contemporary publishers included in this book Mm -hmm. who have artwork in it, either projects that are reviewed in it, you know, because when I first started doing this book and I was telling people I was doing it, they're like, oh, these are all projects that you personally have printed or published. And, you know, because I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years. And I was like, oh, no. I was like, there's only a couple of projects that I've worked on in there. It's everybody else. And the idea was to create a book that really shows the depth within the community of fine art printmakers, printers, publishers, and, and how it's so important in so many places in so many ways so that people who are coming to this book get a greater understanding that there's a way for them to enter into it too. They can see all these different print shops in different parts of the world. There's, there's probably a print shop that they could go see mm. and they could knock on their door and be like, Hey, let me see some prints. And that's really the encouragement. That's like my call to action in the book from that bigger marketing perspective is to go see the work in person. There's a list of publicly accessible print collections, um, mostly in the United States um, so like, you know, most people don't know that the Library of Congress is fully accessible to the public. Right. You can make an appointment, you can see anything you want. The Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Modern Art, you know, the Legion of Honor in San Francisco, the Chicago Art Institute of Chicago, like the Tate Britain has it. I mean, there's all of these publicly accessible collections where you can go see the most important historic works and the most contemporary works on a table in front of you. Right, so that you can, you can, you can go be part of it. And that's, that's what I mean about that stewardship aspect is that prints are cared for, but they're also intended to be viewed. And that's why there's so many of these publicly accessible print collections. Yeah. Like you, you can't go look at any painting in a museum of modern arts collection, but you can go look at any print. Yeah. The print and that's really yeah. the print viewing room. It's one of the greatest things, yeah. you know, so like if I met, like you can be like, well, let me see that Dura wood block. Mm-hmm. You know, and for an artist, that's amazing to get to actually live with that work for a bit and be inspired. Maybe there's a project that you're doing something that, you know, is inspired by or in a line or a vein of thought that another artist had done. You can go live with it for a art consultant. You can bring a client in and do an entire educational seminar with them to give them a good foundation and some portion of art history based on the print collection. You know, so for me, the, the book was really about trying to fix that problem that you're that you were bringing up on like how do we get more people into it and i I really think it's it's really about being more welcoming it's about saying we want more people here we want your opinions and your perspectives because they cause us to see the work differently too Mm. right you know it's it's that trying to remember what it's like not to know and there's something really wonderful in that position you know and we were talking before we started recording about you know, there's, there's stuff that when I went to research for the book, I was like being reminded of Yeah. like, Oh, I remember learning this 25 years as a student, you know? <laughs> and then you're just like, Oh God, this is why I love this so much. And you get re-reminded or you, because there's been time, there's more research and there's more information. And, and if there's just so much going on in this world and it's so rich that it's really easy to geek out on it and get a lot of feedback. You know, it's, it's, you feel closer to the artists through print than you would through the other primary media Mm. and there's something really wonderful about getting to feel that closeness to the makers of the work you know that's you know that's why the book is titled what it is i started writing it and i was like well this is really the only title this book could have (laughs) i was like you know i was like trying to come up with another one and i was like well what it's about is prints and the people will make them yeah i i love i love the straightforwardness of that absolutely you know know, and I think that's, you know, in, in a print shop, that's what we do. We have to distill everything down to its most essential parts because we can't do everything that an artist would do in their studio. 
because we're limited by process and time and money and all these other things. So we have to distill everything down to its most essential, most important elements to help that artist really be true to their voice and speak clearly. And so, you know, that's, that's the kind of the theme that carries through, but when it comes then to building a collecting audience, it's that same thing. It's about, it's about breaking it down for people so that, that they feel welcome and then they feel excited to learn and know. Right. And, and it, that this is a place that they can be, you know, it's, like what I always hear about people who are new into print collecting and then like maybe a year or two into like being involved more with printmaking, they're just like, I never knew that there were so many people who cared this much. And it's really wonderful to be around other people who are wanting to look at the world in this way because you just don't get that in many other circles. And so the print community is so warm and so welcoming. And I think it's because we all get to spend that much time with one another through our work. Yeah. Right. Where you don't necessarily get in other ways. It's, it's a very accessible physical thing, right. A way of connecting to people across time and great distances and different cultures. And you get to live with it. You know, I mean, prints initially were intended to be intimate, you know, held mm-hmm. in hands. You know, so you sit with it. It doesn't, there's something really special about sitting with it, you know, and I think anyone can relate to it. If there's a book that they love that they reread, right. That's just, it's so important to have those things that feed you in that way. And that as you change, it evolves with you, even though it's static, like it technically hasn't changed, but you're seeing something different in it because you've changed as a person. Mm. And that's what those really great works do. And, and, you know, prints, you know, I would argue do that more often than other media because they're such considered things. Yeah. You know, and so hopefully, you know, that, you know, if you've got a screen printed t-shirt, you're already half, <laughs> halfway in the door you're from making right there. then and there, yeah. <laughs> you know, and Absolutely. It, you know, so yeah. it's a very long winded way of answering that question. No, it's important. It is something that really, you know, vexes me as well. And it's on my mind all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's, it's just takes a lot of persistence to break through. And I think in this day and age, especially, you know, pandemic times, I think people are really looking for different ways of connecting with one another. For sure. And I think prints are, are something that, that can potentially break through in that realm because, because you do feel the presence of the maker. You feel their hands mm. on that piece of, that, was, that touched that piece of paper. And I think there's something really special about that, about knowing that it, something was treated with such care. You know, and, you know, when the print arrives to you and it's packed appropriately and yeah. wonderfully and you can see all of that care that's been placed, it gives you a sense of that responsibility. That's really why I talk about print collecting as more of a stewardship. Mm-hmm. And I think when people think about a role, I think it's easier to think of oneself as a steward than, say, a patron. Because you might feel that patronage is like a class that you can't attain. But patronage is also you know, someone who frequents, it's a supporter, you know, it's like a patron of a shop is someone who goes there regularly or even of a restaurant. Right. So there's ways in which to be patrons without having to be the financial supporter of everything that someone does. And I think that's, you know, the stewardship concept really helps people get to that place faster because there's, you know, to take care of something is, is something innate in us as humans. You know, it's, why we take care of our children and Mm -hmm. why we want to take care of our communities. And I think that aspect in print is something, it satisfies something really root or base in us as people. So prints, once people start going down that road of collecting, really get that fuller sense. I think you, you see it in people, you know, having been in this industry for so long, you know, print collectors are really happy collectors. Yeah, they are. (laughs) (laughs) We're the happiest of all the collectors. We are. (laughs) You know, so I'm like, if you want to feel good about the art you're buying, just buy prints. You'll just always buy feel prints. good. It makes you so happy. Yeah. I feel like that's, that's a, such a great note to end on to wrap up. It's just like, buy prints, it'll make you happy. Like, it's just so straightforward. It really will. Of a message, it will. It will. So, please let people know where they can find you, where they can find your book. And 
if they want to participate in this upcoming book club, is it, it's going to go on for six weeks, I think, the book club, is that right? Or six sessions? Yeah. Six sessions. It's, um, it'll, it's every other week for six sessions. starts February 25th. You can... The updates on my website based on the book, which is just philsersprintmaking.com. It's the easiest way to get a copy of the book direct from me, mm -hmm. um, which would be a signed copy. And there's also special limited editions that has an, a lithograph of mine in it, or which is the author's edition. And then there's an artist edition, which has a screen print from Glenn Baldridge in it that would come with the book. So you can get a signed copy or one of these special edition ones. If you really just want it super quick turnaround and that weird discount that Amazon, I just still don't understand how they can do it. <laughs> uh, you can buy it from Amazon. I prefer, obviously, if you buy direct. Um, yes, we all and, prefer uh, that. Yes, yes. Buy direct. Yeah. So, you know, and you can follow me on Instagram. That's uh, Phil Sanders Studio um, on Instagram. So you get updates and I post lots of work, not just prints, but, I, you know, try to. So definitely I try to spread your eye around on different things and think about different things that's going on historically as well as contemporary work. But for the most part, yeah, the, so the, the book club, you'll be able to get access to that through my website and you can always email me directly. So, and through my company, my consulting company is PS Marlowe Incorporated. And I'm based in Asheville, North Carolina. Pre-COVID times, I was on the road a lot. Yeah. Um, would probably be in a city near you. I, I do a lot of public speaking and museum enrichment and stuff like that. Um, spent a lot of time in New York City. So once once travel life is back on, and people can come visit me in Asheville, North Carolina. It's always it's easy to reach out to me, and or I'll see you sometime in New York or LA or wherever wherever I'm at because I'm kind of. <laughs> Normal times, I'm kind of around in a lot of different yeah. places. So that, those are the easy ways to find me and get a copy of the book. Yeah, appreciate the support. Brilliant. Yeah. No, thank you so much for coming on and sharing the stories and the passion and, and doing the good work and being on Team Prince with us. We're, we're very happy you're here. And uh, yeah, uh, thank you again. It's been great to, great to talk and I'll, I'll be in touch as this release comes up and, and all of that. Wonderful. It's, it's been a lot of fun. And I always like to see what things stick with people. Yeah. You know, for me, it was really inspiring writing the book. And I, and I hope that people find different types of inspiration when they go through it. Because the work is so good from all these artists, and all these printers and all these publishers. It's, it's something that's really uplifting, page to page to page. You can get lost on any image for an entire day if you want. And so I hope that that book has that ability to inspire people, to take, take a bad day and make it good, drive an artist into the studio, drive someone to go look at art in person, or to better yet, to support artists by buying work. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll put links to everything in the show notes. And um, yeah, thank you again. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guests will be... Brandon Gunn and Valkyrie Rambling of the Tamarind Institute. We'll talk about their backgrounds, the program, and all things planographic, and why the 21st century is the perfect time to be drawing on rocks. You will not want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.